to my conspicuous family and friends near and far, old and new. This is Kevin Mercurio on the mic, and welcome to the 37th episode of the Metaphorgens podcast. To show support, if you like this sort of content, it's very simple. Please take five seconds to rate and subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify or Google Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on. It truly helps small, independent podcasts reach new people and grow the show with minimal effort. You can always leave a small review as well and follow at Metaphorgens on Instagram. That's at Metaphorgens, where I'll be posting all of my updates, as well as on my personal website, kjbmercurio.com slash Metaphorgens. As always, I will hold another draw on my 40th episode for... (laughs) I know, it's coming. Something will be present for this. But stay tuned for more information on this very real object, whatever it ends up being. Okay, so for today's episode, I'll be talking about an expression that metaphorically sounds so astronomically arduous, it may even be beyond this world. Here's the deal. You're ecstatic, beaming with jubilance and delight. It's November 12th, and you and your friend have tickets to see your favorite music artist perform at their Astro Moon World Tour concert. The artist in question is Scott Travis, one of the leading hip-hop MCs in the world today. He's best known for Psycho Mode, with classic lyrics like, In the 305, bitches treat me like I'm Uncle Luke. Stone stop, pop that pussy. Had to slop the top off, it's just a roof, uh? She said, where we going? I said, the moon. We ain't even make it to the room. She thought it was the ocean, it's just the pool. He's also known for yet another classic track, The Caterpillar Impact, with yet another verse containing the following bars. Heating up, baby. I'm just heating up. It's lit. Need your love. Not a need. It's a must, yeah? Feeling stuck? You know how to keep me up. Yeah, yeah. Icy love. Icy like a hockey puck. Alright. As these are your favorite songs since Astro Moon album debuted in 2018, you and your friend even dressed up for the festival. Your friend coming in a full moon spherical costume with a shirt that has the question, Where are we going? written on the front. And yourself wearing a full hockey player outfit, gloves, helmet, stick and puck in hand. You're just missing the skates, your friend said, before you hopped on the bus to the venue. Astro Moon has multiple meanings for you. Not only is it your favorite hip-hop album with more bangers like Planet Grazing, having such stylish lyrics like the following. Got new money, got new problems, got new enemies. When you make it to the top, that's the amenities. Packing out Toyota like I'm in the league, and it ain't a mosh pit if it ain't no injuries. I got him stage diving out the nosebleeds, alright, alright, alright. And she hit that booger sugar till her nose bleed. Alright, alright, alright. But Astro Moon was also named after one of your favorite theme parks, created by Six Flags and now a defunct amusement center. Going to Astro Moon with your family and friends were the best years of your youth. Scott Travis felt this distinct pain, this isolation of having a location so sentimental to your existence implanted within you. Quote, For this life, I cannot change. He was right. You could not change. Nonetheless, you could at least relive those colorful memories through his insightful bars and beats.
You and your friend finally arrive at the Astro Moon Festival entrance. It's packed, something that you never thought would happen again after COVID. And in fact, COVID still rages on. It's just people are tired of it. As Travis would say, quote, There's a lot of us out here that are birds, man. We all need to just fly. As you think of this, you see a man dressed as a gigantic robin. The three of you snap some selfies before walking through the mouth of a large sculpture representing Travis's head. You and your friend make your way as close to the front as possible. The costumes you both brought pose some spatial and attention challenges as your hockey stick continuously trips attendees and others trying to plant flags on your friend while screaming, it was a hoax, whatever that means. The both of you make it about halfway to the stage before it becomes almost impossible to squeeze past anymore. It's a bit peculiar as you look up in all directions and just see the fronts and backs of heads, countless of them. Where did we even come from, you ask your friend? However, when you turn to where they were last, they have disappeared, engulfed by the crowd, pushing closer and closer to the stage. Before you can begin the search and rescue, the lights shut off, signaling the concert is about to start. The crowd erupts in cheers. More and more people are fed into the space between the entrance and the stage. Strobe lights flash the stage in epic sequential fashion, and with fire blasting like a volcano exploding through stage floor nozzles, Travis appears and starts the show with Yellowstone, laying down some more of your favorite bars. Ice on my neck, flawless baguettes, hop off a jet, barely get rest, cash through the month, I get a check, Yves Saint Laurent on my pants and my chest. Chanel, her dress, clean up her mess. I eat her flesh, you know the rest. It is at this moment that you realize how difficult it is to breathe. Not because of the lack of air in the venue, you are outside after all, but because of the amount of people packed into the clearing. It's as if guards at the entrance have continuously let in person after person without accounting for the fact that people actually take up space. You start panicking and begin asking people around you if they have seen your friend. What do they look like? One concert goer says. Well, they're tall. They have black hair, kind of nerdy looking. You almost forget about the costume. They're dressed like a moon, you exclaim. The woman points to your friend, standing on top of a security car, looking extremely frightened. They're much closer to the front of the stage than you are, where you are shocked at how many people are lined up with their arms in the air. You hear over Travis and his crew screaming, Fuck the club up! Fuck the club up! That people are screaming back, Stop the concert! Stop the concert! You yell towards your friend, to no success. You say aloud, There's absolutely no way I can get to that security car with all these people. How am I going to get my friend's attention? Surprisingly, the woman you were questioning earlier responds, Well, you have a hockey puck, right? Why don't you just shoot for the moon? Making the motion of a Stanley Cup champion scoring Game 7 overtime goal, you have no other choice. You get up to the picnic table beside you, line up your shot, breathe, and take the most important slap shot of your life. Incredibly, this bounces off someone's beer bottle and smashes the rear window of the security car. Luckily, this grabs your friend's attention immediately, and they see you waving your hands in the air to the beat of no witnesses. The sound scares all those around the car, and this pushes people more forward towards the stage, causing a kind of stampede. Because of this, there is enough room for your friend to jump down and make their way towards the entrance where you meet them. 
This endeavor takes 37 minutes, all of which people are yelling to stop the concert, but oddly enough, Travis continues. You and your friend finally get home, despite the sirens whooshing by back towards the concert venue. Alright, maybe too soon. I enjoy the idea of creative writing around recent events, and this sort of evolved into you starting the now infamous Astroworld incident during Travis Scott's latest show. He should have stopped the concert much earlier than he did. Anyway, if you caught today's expression, well, good for you. <laughs> it's an elegant one, but has me wondering why we aim for Earth's companion when embarking on a difficult mission with high reward. What's the origin to the expression, shoot for the moon? Most of this information was obtained from many articles discussing the origins to this expression, all sources we mentioned in the description. I have fallen a long way. Clouds are flowering blue and mystical over the face of the stars. Inside the church, the saints will be all blue, floating on their delicate feet over cold pews, their hands and faces stiff with holiness. The moon sees nothing of this. She is bald and wild, and the message of the yew tree is blackness, blackness and silence. Sylvia Plath, ladies and gentlemen, this is the conclusion of one of her many poems, The Moon and the Yew Tree. And although the moon in this case is a convoluted metaphor to a parent, Plath is not the only wielder of wordplay to allegorically use the moon for hidden players. Here's Percy Shelley's To the Moon. Art thou pale for weariness of climbing heaven and gazing on the earth, wandering companionless among the stars that have a different birth, and ever changing like a joyless eye that finds no object worth its constancy? Or Robert Frost, The Freedom of the Moon, I put it shining anywhere I please. By walking slowly on some evening later, I've pulled it from a crate of crooked trees and brought it over glossy water greater and dropped it in, and seen the image wallow, the color run, all sorts of wonder follow. The moon is an entity that represents the human experience of beauty and melancholy, its dim light just a reflection during nocturnal quandaries of people out and about, reflecting in themselves some deep thought, or returning home from an evening of splendor. In fact, the language surrounding the moon has been referred to frequently in music, like Bruno Mars's Talking to the Moon, Prince's Moonbeam Levels, and Credence Clearwater's Bad Moon Rising. Here, loneliness, missing someone, death, and quite possibly the end of the world, which I suppose might be beautiful from a global disaster point of view, like the upcoming movie Moonfall. The English language has dedicated much of its expressions with our Eclipse creator to describing impossible outcomes. Lingoda.com lists some more lunar expressions such as asking for the moon and being promised the moon, which are redundant statements that lead to heartbreak. Even the term honeymoon that coincides with celebrating the love of a recent marriage was created because honey represents sweet, while moon represents a short duration of time. And incredibly, to be over the moon is when one feels enormous happiness. 
The moon is quite literally something many of us can never obtain or reach towards, but it is there, ever present in our lives every single day, watching over what's happening on Earth. A select few of us have been given the opportunity to land on the moon, like Apollo 11's Neil Armstrong, whose first statement of, quote, this is one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, is missing an A to have any profound meaning. But even its surface is beautifully melancholic, cold, quiet, uneventful, lacking hues like the moon filter on Instagram. But yet, we still strive to reach it like an infant reaching out to a parent. This line of thinking got me curious about today's expression, shoot for the moon. Oddly, my usual sources had varied interpretations of its meaning. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary describes to shoot for the moon as, quote, to try to do or get something that is very difficult to do or get, while Cambridge Dictionary defines it as, quote, to ask for the best or the most you could hope for. The first, deterministic and gamble-like inferred behavior, echoed by the 2020 filmmaking documentary named of the expression itself, whose tagline was, quote, being an entrepreneur is like having a disease. Either you get better or you die trying. The second, more hopeful and optimistically inclined, spirited by Australian AIM teacher Sharice Jackson as their educational program's motivational slogan. Right. Who or what do we attribute shoot for the moon's origin to? Note that to shoot the moon would be attributed to something entirely different, as the online etymology dictionary describes as, quote, depart by night with one's goods to escape back rent. Stack Exchange user John Mack states today's expression may have been, quote, inspired by Jules Verne's novel From the Earth to the Moon, which portrayed the efforts of a group of ex-Civil War gun manufacturers to blast a man-carrying projectile from the Earth to the Moon. This in itself was likely inspired by, as Max says, quote, shooting at the moon with arrows as a common theme in folktales as diverse as those of the North American Indians and those of Vietnam. Yet, others attribute the expression to American minister Norman Vincent Peale, known for being an advocate for positive thinking, in which one of his most famous sayings is, quote, shoot for the moon, even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. Therefore, I must conclude this segment due to the surprising lack of validation on the origin to this expression with an unfortunate shoulder shrug. It is unclear whether we can attribute the saying to Minister Peel or Verne's novel, since either could work and fit within the growing context of our lunar satellite, it being a potentially unobtainable goal that should be attempted in order to find other goals, or a goal that, at least at the time, was literally impossible without advancing rocket science. In any case, the fascination found in myself and many before me about the moon on its elegant sadness in our language had me shooting for the moon with this segment itself, and once over it, left me feeling happy that I made the attempt. Before we get to the next segment, do you love podcasts? What about starting one yourself? I often think back to early 2020, a time so seemingly distant in the past, and reflect on starting this podcast. 
I believe it was one of the best decisions I have ever made. And I say that for two reasons. One personal reason is that it provides you with some secret motivation to learn about things you are actually interested in, while framing concepts in ways that make sense to you and an audience. For a professional reason, this experience has given ample opportunity to meet people I find fascinating, podcasters, science communicators, people passionate about their hobbies, and even some real talk with friends of mine. Starting a podcast can be difficult. What sort of microphone should you buy? What topics should you discuss? What recording software do you need? What the hell is an RSS feed? However, you can find answers to all that and more through my podcasting hosting platform of choice, Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout is a seamless service that supports anyone wishing to launch and produce a professional podcast, hosting over 100,000 people on their platform. Your show is completely online and listed on all the major podcast directories just minutes after uploading your recording. In addition, you automatically get a stylish podcast website, detailed analytics to monitor the growth of your show, access to videos and discussion forums about all podcast topics like industry trends and marketing your show, plus much, much more. There's also an incredibly supportive community of podcasters in the Buzzsprout community offering great advice on any questions you may have. If you wanted to test out this whole podcast gig, you can jumpstart your own podcast and get a $20 Amazon gift card by clicking the affiliate link in the episode's description. This lets Buzzsprout know that I sent you to their service and will help support Metaforgins and money towards creating more super cool butterfly merch. Buzzsprout, the easiest way to start a podcast. And now, back to the episode. For my communication segment, I would like to talk about another comparison between two similar environments within academia, and with one having such global prestige, thus sought after more in the professional ladder of research, and that comparison is of Canadian versus American institutes. We've all heard the trope before, that feeling of positive surprise or bewilderment when someone utters the name of a specific university, the brand connection to higher orders of the human experience and difficulty in obtaining such a level of class unless, of course, you're one smart cookie. The top university of the country, Ivy League, home of the Nobel Prize winner in such and such. These promotions that drive students and early career researchers to their websites and spend hours filling in those online applications, then shakily click the submit button after paying an application fee, of course. I think I will, in a different episode, dive more into the drivers of academic prestige, like university ranking lists and brand promotion, as this attribution of brand to actual work may be more convoluted than we believe. But here, for this episode, I'd like to discuss this juxtaposition of regional research settings, of which I became curious about whether there are any noticeable differences. For a bit of context, I completed a Bachelor of Science and Master of Science in Biochemistry at the University of Ottawa in Canada. I have also worked in the University of Alberta in Edmonton as a research intern in a virology lab. Oh, how I never would have dreamed of its relevancy seven years down the line. Additionally, I have been affiliated with other universities in Canada through other professional experiences in government and industry, along with some contacts actually doing research in all sorts of fields. This network of motivated men and women, Canadian or international, has inspired my own work ethic, shaped and constructed the pillars for which it stands strong, despite much of the weight in experimentation and extracurriculars I dump on top of it. 
Yet, a thought arises when I turn my head south of our Canadian border, when I look at mainstream news, or when I read the affiliations of keynote speakers at conferences, or even through everyday conversation with my peers about research, this wow factor towards American research institutes. Harvard, Yale, MIT, UCLA, institutes that I personally know that many people in my network have dreamed of going to ever since they became fascinated with the scientific method. Why is that? Excluding climate reasons, generally speaking, why would someone rather go to Harvard than, say, the University of Toronto? MIT rather than McGill University? Hell, I'm a complete tech buffoon, but if an opportunity arises to do some postdoctoral fellowship in biological sciences at MIT, why am I certain that I will weep with tears of joy? <laughs> I'm obviously exaggerating, but this bewilderment towards the similar yet different enough research environment is something I cannot quite put my finger on, since research cultures, at least in my head, seem to be pretty much the same, though this will be expanded on in the guest interview. First, let's talk about the countries more broadly. In a 2016 article published in Vox by writer Sarah Cliff, a 2013 international survey of 27,000 respondents found that Canada was top voted in terms of safety, public policy, and efficacy of government, and also that residents themselves feel great about living in Canada. The article also mentions the Program of International Student Assessment, which ranks children's abilities in reading, math, and science across 44 countries, and found that the average performance of a Canadian 15-year-old beat their American counterparts only after Japan and Finland students. Mentioned in a separate article on GRE Edge between 2018 and 2019, quote, Canada is the highest educated country across the globe, and that, quote, Canada has the highest proportion of working age adults among OECD countries at a staggering 55%. Branching off what Canadians think about themselves, a 2020 Pew Research Center survey of Canadian opinions found a majority believe that STEM education at the university and primary secondary levels are either above average or average. A greater majority also believe that Canada is a world leader in scientific achievements and government investment in scientific research. Of course, this obviously changes depending on which government party is in power. During the Trump era of politics, scientists were baffled at how erroneous the former president's public statements were in regards to scientific research and how little was done as punishment. In a 2020 Nature article by writer Jeff Tollefson, he quotes former head of the American Environmental Protection Agency, Christine Todd Whitman, saying, quote, I've never seen such an orchestrated war on the environment or science. This period has been compared to a similar and arguably more Machiavellian period of conservative Canadian politics during the Harper government. In a 2016 Extreme Tech article by writer Graham Templeton, he states how there was a, quote, war on science in Canada in which many disciplines of research became defunded, valuable project data was effectively trashed, and scientists were muzzled by government officials from speaking out due to more financial consequences, or in some cases, even losing their jobs entirely. Yet, these are extreme examples of impressions towards these two countries' research environments. Let's plunge even deeper into the institutes themselves. 
Admissions into universities on either side are important for making that final choice. As mentioned on a blog post for Study USA, for American universities, applicants usually need to provide results of a standardized test like the SAT or GRE examinations in order to assess whether they can handle university life. This is not the case for applying to Canadian universities. Additionally, American universities also require some form of a personal essay describing you and the motives you have for pursuing higher level education. In Canada, all applicants are only really required to meet a grade point average or GPA cutoff assessed from their secondary school grades, and even this may just be to determine whether they get a scholarship or not. This is much more simpler process, and admittance within Canadian institutes is higher. At the graduate level, the financial costs of attending research institutes is daunting. Stated in an article on World Education Services, the average tuition in Canada can range from 8,000 to 20,000 CAD, while in America, it can range from 28,000 to 40,000 USD per year. This excessive figure is likely the reason that, as mentioned in a 2021 CNBC article by writer Abigail Hess, quote, The Federal Reserve estimates that in quarter two of 2021, Americans owed a startling $1.73 trillion in student loans. However, World Education Services also states that, quote, In our comparison, PhD studies in the U.S. have been more favorable outcomes than in Canada. Recent studies show that the demand for employees with a doctoral degree in Canada is lower than the number of doctoral graduates. And therefore, the job market for holders of a graduate degree might have better luck in the U.S. for employment. And what about campus life? Surely that has an impact on whether you choose to go there or not. In a 2018 Insider article titled 12 of the Biggest Differences Between Attending a University in the US and in Canada by writer Zoe Miller, campus life is much more prevalent in American universities. Three of the 12 differences involve a less populated and closer student body, the dorm experience, and quote, Greek life, like sororities and fraternities favoring the US. This, in my view, is most likely glamorized by Hollywood and thus adds to that fantasized notion of the college experience we all know about American universities. In the end, when it really comes down to it, it's all about brand recognition. Like a marketing 101 class, brand is everything. Sure, Nobel laureates flow through American universities as much as dropouts looking to launch the next unicorn startup. And sometimes succeeding to change the world for the good and the bad. And this goes back to something I've mentioned previously in that we value so much the idea of individual success and believe that this is what drives a proper research intensive work environment. This sadly might be the case, as with brand recognition, this may catalyze more research collaboration. But since Canada seems to be leading in both national and international polls in regards to views on science and research, quality of life, and financial costs to achieving higher level education, we should not count out the prestige that comes to conducting research in general, no matter where you find yourself. Hopefully, one day, the brand that brings recruiters or employers to provide you opportunities stems not from locational prestige, but rather the collaborative drive to change the world. Wouldn't that be something, eh?
for my seventh guest of the season, I'll be interviewing someone who has taken a work ethic as hard as steel to succeed in their academic journey through outstanding Canadian and American research institutes. She's currently a postdoctoral associate in Dr. Sean Ferguson's lab at Yale University, studying how the innate immune response is impacted in the context of neurodegenerative disease with a focus on lysosome biology. Earlier this year, she completed her PhD in cellular and molecular medicine at the University of Ottawa, and further, she also has a Bachelor's of Science in Genetics from the University of Western Ontario. Her resume is rich with accolades from scholarships, publications, grants, even awarded the silver medal for her poster at the 2019 CSHRF CIHR Health Science Conference in Winnipeg. Otherwise, outside the lab, she enjoys being sportive through various extracurriculars, competitive or recreational. Please welcome the scientifically methodical Amanda Bentley D'Souza. So we will start now. Uh, thank you, Amanda, for coming on to the podcast today. This is the seventh episode of season four of Metaphorgens. So um, again, thank you for coming. I did introduce you before this discussion started, uh, but just in case people skip to the very interesting conversation we're about to have, uh, I'm just going to introduce you again, okay? So Amanda is currently a postdoctoral associate, not fellow, at Yale University in Dr. Sean Ferguson's lab, studying lysosomes in neurodegenerative diseases. She previously did a PhD in cellular and molecular medicine at the University of Ottawa, which is where we met in our very collaborative yeast <laughs> research group. So that was really cool. She also did a Bachelor of Science in Genetics at Western University, which is also in Canada. Additionally, she has much experience in the academic community via various publications, uh, poster presentations, oral presentations, as well as grant authorships, and is also a very sportive person. She's hugely involved, or I guess was involved, she might still be, in rugby and uh, also lacrosse that one random <laughs> season oh, okay. with a mutual friend of ours. It's not our fault because COVID <laughs> happened, okay? We were all-stars going up. But <laughs> I still remember some of us coming out to support you with posters, so yeah. that was really fun. Yeah, you guys chose to come out to support us when we were playing 12-year-olds. So <laughs> <laughs> Did you guys win that? I don't, even, I don't remember now. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it might have been a tie, folks. I've known her for quite some time now. You know, during this beginning of the uh, discussion, uh, I just asked the person to kind of talk more about your experience in academia. So your uh, PhD or even your uh, Bachelor of Science, if you like to, any relevant previous extracurriculars you've done, and of course, what you're doing now as a postdoc in Yale um, and other extracurriculars you're involved in. As Kevin mentioned, I did my undergrad at Western University, um, and that's where I kind of started to dive into molecular biology a little bit more, doing genetics as my bachelor's. 
during that time, and as he kind of alluded to, I was more so involved in sports as extracurriculars in respect with academia and being involved in associations and stuff. Didn't really have that much experience, but I chose to focus on sports, which actually was quite beneficial and I learned a lot. So it really helped me throughout my studies and even right now. Um, Then I transferred to doing my PhD at the University of Ottawa, where we met. Took me about six years to graduate, but it was a great time. I learned so much during my PhD. I had a great supervisor, so grateful for all that whole experience in general. And it really, really helped me and set me up for success for where I am now. So now I'm a postdoctoral associate at Yale um, in Sean Ferguson's lab. And it's really exciting because I've actually learned so much since I switched to this lab. So previously I was in a yeast lab, as you mentioned. Um, and now I only do mammalian cell work. So I've learned a lot, which is, I guess, a little intimidating, but really exciting. COVID's kind of still going on. I haven't really gotten back into athletics, but I've recently joined the Yale Postdoc Association. So that's new for me, and I'm excited to kind of pursue that and see what's going on. I learned a lot. We had a meeting last night, and they actually do quite a lot uh, for the community at Yale. So excited to contribute a little bit more. Shoutouts to uh, Michael Downey. Hopefully he's yeah. going to listen to this episode. <laughs> and, no, you have to shout out to Jack, too, his dog. Because that's oh, yes. a comment yes. if, you, if we don't shout out Jack. <laughs> the first shout out I should give. Uh, and then and then Dr. <laughs> Downey, of course. Again, I mentioned um, that you're very sportive and you're like really involved in sports or athletics during your academics. How did you find that sort of time management between your studies Yeah, so I played varsity rugby for four years during my undergrad and then one year during my PhD. Surprisingly, you would think it'd be more difficult, but for me, it gave me more structure. So it made me, it forced me to have some sort of schedule because we had practice every day um, and then on top of your coursework. So then you kind of create schedules and then that helps you manage your schoolwork and then anything outside of that. Um, But what did really help me is during my undergrad when I was playing at Western, my head coach is a sports psychologist, Dr. Natasha Wesch. So she certainly gave us tons of skills to be able to work on our time management and everything else. So that actually worked out very well in my favor. I know it's not the same for everyone, but it was a positive experience for me. And you you mentioned now that uh, you're part of the postdoc association at Yale. Yeah, First time being um, part of an academic association. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what's your position there and like how involved is the postdoc association in the university at large? Our postdoc association is a little bit different than what we knew at U Ottawa. Um, so a postdoc in my previous lab, Dr. Emma Bondi-Charney, she was the co-president for the postdoc association. Um, But that postdoc association was specific to the Faculty of Medicine. So here it's for the whole university. So it's kind of interesting because you get to meet people from different backgrounds and whatnot. And it's it kind of gives you a bigger perspective on things because we're so stuck in the scientific fields. Not only that, but learning how to communicate things on a basic level because everything's intended and all the events are intended for everyone within Yale. So I'm a secretary right now. So I basically help college documents for our meetings and then I take notes during the meetings so it was my first experience last night it was a lot to learn but it was exciting <laughs> um they yeah so we have a couple of subcommittees 
the two notable ones, I guess I would say, are the professional development. We've also got a DEI community. And then we have obviously a committee that plans um, events and whatnot, which is challenging in these times. So a lot of our events right. have cap for the number of people that can attend um, because of COVID, but hopefully in the future it gets a little bit better. No, that's good. I think these sorts of associations need to happen, grab like-minded individuals together and sort of create that community, especially at a university. Um, mostly the time we're isolated doing our research. So um, definitely an important initiative you're involved in. Yeah, it's kind of interesting too, especially coming from, because we know people part of grad student associations from back home. Um, yeah. So it's kind of interesting seeing the change in the priorities, I guess I would say, between associations. Everything mm -hmm. kind of switches gears once you become a postdoc, so it's quite different, but it's it's really interesting, and there's a lot of things and a lot of um, opportunities we have here to learn more about being a postdoc, becoming, or going into the career force and whatnot, so. You're adulting in the, in the <laughs> academic world. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> Always hugely respect people that can uh, balance, um, and this is, I guess, a sort of alluding to my uh, work-life balance episode, so two episodes ago, um, people that can balance doing extracurriculars and then doing their research as well, especially for a postdoc. Yeah. Um, maybe just do a small deep dive into more of the specifics that you do in your research. Yeah, so as you mentioned, we study lysosomes within our lab. Um, and so there's a couple of projects ongoing in the lab. But what I really do like is that we often have a couple of people within those projects, but with different avenues of their research. So it's almost like we have like subgroups within our lab, which is really unique to me because in my old lab, my PI was just starting out. So everything was new and we were exploring a completely new field of biology. So it was kind of We'll take what we can, we'll research what we can and go with it. But here we have our little subgroup. So it's kind of nice to have like-minded people within your subgroup to talk to and then people outside to get an outsider's perspective. Shortly, what I'm working on now is I'm a part of the Alliance Sciences Against Parkinson's or ASAP program. And so the whole program encompasses labs across the world. There's labs from Australia, there's labs from Europe, Canada, US, etc. And we're all kind of trying to collaborate together to hopefully get treatments for Parkinson's disease. So that's mainly my focus now. And I'm looking at how proteins that are commonly genetically mutated in Parkinson's disease are impacting lysosome biology and protein trafficking, specifically within the immune response. Because a lot of people think of neurons most of the time with neurodegenerative disease, but there's so many other factors that impact the development and the progression of the disease that we still need to study. I really definitely cool. fields going from yeast to neurons and macrophages, but here we are. It's <laughs> <laughs> such a drastic change. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> the research you're doing at Yale, always super cool to hear what you're doing over there. For, for yeah. me to like during my PhD, everything was yeast-based and we studied a novel post-translational modification, which was really interesting and a lot of people are very interested about it but for me personally I think I needed a little bit more association with disease um, because that's where a lot of my passion is. Everything I learned during my PhD was a great stepping stone to where I am now but I'm really excited to see where my research goes. Your project in your PhD was sort of uh, had that disease connection rather yeah. than some of the other PhD students or master's students in our research group where 
we're kind of looking at the genetic pathways, uh, looking at the at the molecular level, while you sort of have a connection to a more um, relatable outcome or relatable to actual human life. Yeah. So when I first started, we were studying this post-translational modification called polyphosphorylation. I'm not going to bore people about it or anything. You can go check it out, read up on it. It's actually really, really, really exciting. Well, not bore, but some people think more bigger picture. So when you talk about PTMs, for example, they're like, okay, it's happening on some proteins. Our lab has been contributing a lot to that field um, in many aspects, so it's been really rewarding. But near the end of my PhD, I ended up focusing more on protein trafficking pathways um, so focusing on this pathway called the AP3 pathway. And this complex is linked to a rare genetic disease called hermansky pudlak syndrome. And so kind of understanding more of the underlying biology there would be applicable to patients who have HPS, for example. So, yeah, I did end a little bit um, with more disease-related stuff. But obviously, using yeast, you're you're getting more of an idea of the basic biology versus kind of using a more applicable model system. But we definitely made some contributions that helped. Yeah, the your your lab is definitely the only polyphosphorylation <laughs> lab that I know of. So <laughs> we are the I mean that's our keystone, right? So people know about us. <laughs> <laughs> I think that says something, right? <laughs> yeah, it does. It was kind of exciting, especially starting out new into a new field and having people come up to me and say, oh, is my protein polyphosphorylated? I don't know. It made me really, it made me even more excited about the research I was doing to know that people were that interested in it. Oh, very cool. Very cool. It's always good to hear like what, uh, yeah, makes scientists like really excited about their work. So that's, that's really nice. So now we're going to go a bit deeper into the topic at hand for today's episode which was um, sort of about the differences between Canadian and American research institutes or universities, colleges, however you want to label them. I thought the best way to do this with a guest would be sort of having a timeline and then kind of give the listeners the perspective that obviously it's coming from a Canadian. So yeah. you you might know more of that side versus the side that you're currently at, which is at an American institute. Yeah. But since you've had both experiences or both perspectives, um, this is why I thought you would be, no, I thought, I think, I know, actually, I know that you're a great guest for today's topic. Um, so I think the best way to do this would be sort of having a timeline of your academic journey. And this is something I've actually always been interested as your friend to know about this uh, from you. So um, six years to ask, but thank you. (laughs) The first time I labeled us as friends, people, we're getting progress. This is a great milestone. (laughs) (laughs) This is uh, this is progress. I've always been interested in the origins of uh, researcher stories like yourself, uh, especially for today's topic. So my first question, just to get into this, is do you remember how you became interested in science and what drove you to apply to science-based programs after your secondary education or high school? In high school, um, obviously you take a lot of courses and whatnot. And honestly, science and biology was never my strongest suit, but it was the thing that I was most interested in. That's why coming out of high school, I decided to apply to science programs. So I applied to a couple of universities within Canada. 
And I was actually going to go to Dalhousie, which is on the east coast of Canada, until I got my acceptance to Western University. And the next day I accepted that acceptance because I was really excited to go. I went to Western University and I was in biomedical sciences um, because I was one of those hopefuls wanting to go to med school originally. So I thought, oh yeah, medical sciences sounds like pre-med. We'll go for that. I entered the program and I was originally um, hoping to specialize in microbiology and immunology. I mean, grades played a lot of it, obviously, because getting into med school is incredibly difficult. Um, so I kind of started thinking of different avenues to go down. And once I started taking more genetics courses, I decided to major in genetics, which is actually a very unique program to Western University because it's not something that's offered everywhere. So it was really cool to have that opportunity to be in a genetics program. And I most of my courses were genetics. So I was taking lab-based genetics programs, human genetics, genetic engineering and whatnot. So a lot of those courses actually really helped me during my PhD because I had that background information. And then I started looking into research a little bit more because a requirement of the honors program, I think it's a requirement, is to do an honors research project. And that's not a requirement everywhere, but that was one there. So I joined Dr. Kathleen Hill's lab at Western University. My time there, they were mostly focusing on bioinformatics and looking at single nucleotide polymorphisms linked to cancer. But there was another side project that they were working on in the lab. And it was, in short, characterizing a type of mouse called the harlequin mouse. And so this mouse is called the harlequin mouse because it often has patchy furs, kind of looking like a harlequin in the olden, olden days. Um, but this mouse model basically has a retroviral insertion into an intron of the AIF gene, so apoptosis-inducing factor gene. And this protein is involved in helping maintain uh, oxidative phosphorylation. And so it was kind of a meta metabolomics type or metabolism heavy project, <laughs> I suppose. Um, and so I did learn a lot from, from that experience. And, and one of the notable things, I guess, and opportunities I had is we did mass spec. I actually got to learn about <laughs> mass spec, which a lot of people, even at my stage now, don't fully understand. So mm. from an early age, I got to learn the, the details and my professor was great she was a great role model role model she really helped in in writing stuff and in developing projects so that was kind of my first little foray into research and then going into grad school I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do I knew I wanted to go to grad school as most grad students do you email a lot of profs mm -hmm. um, that you're <laughs> and so I guess for for other people so in Canada Canada doesn't really operate on the rotation system. So in the US, a lot of PhD programs will have a rotation system. So you get accepted into the program and then you choose or rank three top labs that you're interested in. And then you rotate through those, those labs in your first year while you're doing courses. And then I think my impression is at the end, you all rank each other and then you join a lab. So it's quite different than Canada and likely other countries where in, in Canada, you kind of reach out to a supervisor you're interested in, and then they'll say whether or not they want to take you on. And then at least for our types of research, as long as you have the minimum grade requirements, you're going to get in. And then you start doing work in their lab. I kind of emailed a few people and it was actually quite discouraging because a lot of the profs that I messaged didn't have funding, so they were relying on students to have grades high enough to be able to get funding. 
Um, but in my opinion, in Canada, funding isn't, it can be difficult to get because we don't have that many opportunities for funding agencies. So we mostly have the provincial and then the national level funding agencies. And then based on your separate projects, you could get smaller um, federations, councils, committee, whatever funding. So I did get a lot of rejections when I was uh, applying, mostly because I didn't have the grades to qualify to get good funding to support myself. Um, But then I emailed Michael Downey and I ended up being his first grad student, which was quite an experience, but I'm really you know, you you read about people being nervous about joining labs and being the first grad student, but I actually had such a great experience and I learned so much and I hope he learned a lot too going through that because it's, it's a lot for both of us, right? Being the first person, it's, great. it's him jumping out of his postdoc and starting a lab and then it's me coming, <laughs> little coming out of undergrad and starting, but it was a good experience. I learned so much and obviously... Made me want to stay in science because I'm doing a postdoc now. So <laughs> apparently, <laughs> uh, so I completed my PhD at the beginning of this year. Um, unfortunately, as with most people, COVID kind of impacted graduations and and papers and stuff. But eventually made it. Now I'm here. So it was a bit of a journey, um, ups and downs, roller coaster rides, but. I hope anyone listening to this kind of realizes that other people go through that too. And it doesn't matter what happens throughout your process in academia. Like it doesn't matter if you have the worst grades, the best grades, whatever it's for me, a lot of it is about your passion and your work ethic. And that really puts you ahead of others and it pushes you to progress until you get to a point. It, It really helps you kind of progress through academia. Amanda, that was such a good answer. You 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 it literally answered all the questions that I basically had for you in one response. My face is really hot because I got <laughs> I'm gonna tease out some of the little bits though, and so we can talk about the specifics, okay? Oh, yeah. One of the first things I wrote down was Harley Quinn Mouse, because I thought that was a really cool name for a mouse. Okay, so maybe it's not Harley Quinn, it's Harlequin. I know that Harlequin, oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> but that could work but to, too. To, but to remember it, I wrote down Harlequin. That could work too. <laughs> also, the fact that you've did omics work uh, during your undergrad is that true? Yeah, uh, I did. Uh, it didn't work, but I did it. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean that that comes with. I mean, as most omics things, sometimes, especially if you're kind of pursuing larger projects. You kind of just have to go for it, see if it works or not. And then I guess that's one thing I would call the go no go experiment, which is a term that I learned from Mike. It's kind of like that one experiment where after you get the results, you decide whether or not to still pursue that avenue of research. Omics, just for in case people aren't aware of it, is just like um, sort of holistic analysis of whatever it is you're studying or a sample, a sample collection. You would get so much data. Um, and then get a bigger picture of the scenario versus studying something uh, at a specific pinpoint tunnel vision level. Yeah. That's why I found it interesting that um, you were given that opportunity as an undergrad to uh, dive into that. That's That seems very complex at, at, such a, <laughs> at such a level. So that's really yeah. cool. Yeah. But having the omics is a huge tool set and the people who've developed all the omics and all those techniques and the bioinformatics people, like, They've really revolutionized biology, I think. Yeah, there's there's so many 
individual projects that can come out of one mm -hmm. omics oh, yeah, study. Absolutely. I actually just sent samples off for RNA-seq on my way home before we had this talk. So. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. But going back to, let's say, uh, this was done in your undergrad. Uh, you already talked about, you know, how um, your supervisor there played a significant role in your, I guess, pursuit down the line in, in science and in academia. Uh, we've already mentioned Michael Downey as well. So I feel like these are your two main mentors in, in science. Perhaps there's more which you could talk about. Yeah, so one of my questions that I had mainly was directed at your... Uh, I guess maybe undergrad or before undergrad, but it doesn't have to be. What made these role models for you? Like what attributes did they have that you liked that made you con continue down this road in science and academia? One of the things I liked most about both of those those mentors and my PIs is that they really see the potential in people and they don't look at grades as much. So you can be an A-plus student and GPA of 4.0 out of 4.0, but you might not be meant for lab work. And likewise, if you have a lower GPA, you might be the perfect person for lab work. And so I guess I was kind of more in the lower G, I mean, my GPA wasn't that bad, it just wasn't that competitive, um, but they saw the potential in me. And I think that's really important in PIs and in mentors and seeing past what's on paper and past the superficial things. And so knowing that they did put a lot of effort into helping me develop um, my skills and my talents as a researcher. So that really helped. I also think that this also might be corny, but they both and, and Sean, my current PI as well, like they all believe in their students, if that makes sense. You know, they, they really want the best for their students and they're very supportive. They're always there. Um, one good thing as well is they're they're capable of seeing areas that you need to work on and they help you improve on those areas. So even right now, I know there's a couple of areas I need to work on and I've communicated that with my current PI, Sean, and he really helps me work on those things. So I think those are um, important skills. And I guess I'm in a unique situation wherein I had some PIs that were tenured for longer and then Mike was really new. So it's kind of cool to see the perspective from a student, but also PI right. having different areas and different levels of, of being a PI and research and whatnot. Um, but I think those are the major things I would say for me, because it meant a lot. I, I didn't have that much confidence coming out of undergrad because of my grades. And that's what so many people focus on. But that's not the be all end all. For me personally, having that relationship where I could go to my PI with anything or ask for help with anything really, really helped be having that open relationship especially during my PhD, that was super beneficial. Like I could go up to Mike one day and say, hey, I'm looking to improve this. And he'd be ready to help me in any way he can. And he'd always communicated that. And I knew he was always there no matter, no matter what happens, you know, like even now he still supports me during my postdoc and asks how I'm doing. Um, we talk about science yeah. too. So it, it's really cool having that relationship with a previous mentor. You were mentioning in your your earlier response, what were the main factors that uh, drove you to apply to um, your genetics um, undergrad degree, uh, as well as your PhD in um, cellular and molecular medicine, back to when you were applying to these programs in Canada. So just sort of curious as to 
if you faced any issues in the programs that you applied to in Canada. I know you mentioned that the U.S. and Canada have different uh, sort of systems for getting into grad school or even undergrad, for example. Uh, I've heard of this rotation system in the, the U.S. that you mentioned the U.S. does. I know the University of Toronto does this rotation yeah, system as well. They're an example of that. Um, but yes, in Canada, definitely you would you would apply uh, based on um, just emailing the prof. This is how I actually got my position in in uh, with Kristen Bates for my master's and even in uh, Sinead Kors lab here in Dublin. So I guess it, it just depends on where you are. U.S. seems to have this rotation system um, to a T. Um, so I'm just curious, Ed, like, did you have any issues in applying to Canadian programs? I didn't have any issues. I think navigating the whole process was a little confusing because I was the first STEM person from my family. A lot of my family didn't pursue post-secondary edu education. Um, yeah. so for me, kind of navigating stuff like this was a little challenging because you don't really know how to go about stuff unless you ask around and stuff. So I did ask around, kind of figured out my way. Um, but otherwise, it was, I see pros and cons to both systems. So for example, a con to our system where you have to find a supervisor, I just mentioned previously that I was denied a couple of times because of funding. So it's kind of unfortunate in that sense because you could be messaging many people and hoping for a reply. If they do reply, it could be a rejection, for example. Um, so that can be a little mentally taxing and emotionally taxing, I suppose. So like a pro would be that it's not fully based on grades, as we kind of touched on a little bit. Um, so I firmly believe that grades don't really equate to how well you work in a lab and your your problem solving in that aspect. So that's kind of beneficial because there you have the opportunity to kind of grow and and focus on that versus grades. The pros I see to the rotation system um, is that you kind of you get a feel for more labs before you have to make a decision that you're spending four plus years in. Right. So it helps to get an idea of not only the lab environment, but the research that's going on in the lab. So I think that's a really cool aspect of the rotation system. Um, however, I'm assuming a lot of the entrance admissions are based on grades. So it's kind of there's pros and cons to both. Yeah, I guess it's personal preference. Um, did you think about going abroad for the U.S. Uh, to do your Ph.D.? Uh, or, or undergrad? Or undergrad? Undergrad did not think about going abroad. Ph.D. not so much either. Mostly wanted to stay in Canada. But I knew going into my postdoc that I was likely going to go outside of Canada for that. So I, I guess this is one of your questions as well, but I... I guess, quote unquote, was a little fortunate that the time when I was looking for a postdoc was when COVID hit because I had all of the time in the world to kind of research other labs. Given that we weren't allowed in the lab, we had to do other stuff like write reviews, focus on manuscripts and stuff. But I chose to focus a lot of my time on researching other labs, especially other labs in other countries that I hadn't really heard of. So I knew I was going to leave Canada, but where I ended up, I wasn't sure yet. Uh, I was just reading the differences or maybe opinions between Canadian and U.S. Uh, students or uh, what do you call them, prospective students for these institutes. Um, a lot of Canadians would rather stay in Canada 
or uh, feel like they should remain close in Canada while Americans or American students would or don't mind traveling across country for ex- or sorry not across country but like abroad um, yeah. uh, or across country to the different universities um, they don't mind that moving aspect so that's, that's sort of an interesting one of the interesting differences that I saw. Yeah, I think, too, especially coming out of a PhD, it really depends on where you want to go career-wise. So I've I've talked to a lot of people, not even just from Canada, but from other countries, and they knew that a lot of the opportunities, if you want to pursue academia and become a PI, were in the U.S., for example. Um, so, And th- that's no shade on anything. Like, there's still phenomenal training going on and phenomenal research going on in different different labs, different countries, but... To some degree, it does seem a little bit easier being in the U.S. just because there's so many institutes and there's so many opportunities for funding as well, which isn't necessarily present in people's home countries. Right. Okay. so you did touch on funding, which is not a question I had planned, but I think that's an important topic to discuss if you if you can, if you have any opinion on it. So you mentioned that. In Canada, there are provincial level and national level funding agencies, which you feel are maybe less adequate. I I, I don't want to speak for you, but maybe you feel less adequate than in the U.S. uh, funding that they provide. Obviously, I'm still not very well versed in funding because I don't run my own lab, hopefully yet. Hopefully I will. Um, But it at least the the impression I get is there's more opportunities here because they they do have, for example, the the national grants that you can get, especially through the NIH. But there's also so many other foundations that you can get grants from here okay. that doesn't necessarily exist in Canada. So I don't know any of the percentages or success rates and stuff. Um, I do know that I have read a lot of complaints about the funding in Canada and a lot of funding being cut and programs being pushed back and stuff. Um, So I don't know in the bigger scheme of things how the funding works out, but it does feel like there's more opportunities here than in Canada. Do you find that that might correlate with whatever government party is in power? Yeah, I certainly think that that would make an impact because at the end of the day, they're kind of at least all the public public money, they're kind of allocating that, right? Just comparing like, for example, obviously during maybe the last four four years with with Trump as presidency, there was there was some funding cuts there, um, and in, that's for the American perspective. And then for the Canadian perspective, there's uh, juxtapositions between Trump and Stephen Harper, who mm-hmm. would cut a lot of funding for um, I would say across all disciplines in science or in STEM. To be to be quite frank, environmental science, uh, climate change. Uh, those sorts of studies is, uh, were the main focus or main target of attack. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are for both. So I think there is some sort of correlation between, yeah, uh, the amount of funding and money science or STEM gets from from these agencies. Yeah, it is really difficult. And I think, I don't know what would help this issue because obviously people are in politics, right? Like they don't know the day-to-day life. They don't really know what it means to run a lab. They don't know how much it costs and stuff like that. So it's it's difficult for, on both sides, right? It's difficult for them to see in general how a lab operates, how much money you spend and, and how much funding should be allocated, how the funding should work. Obviously having more money is better, mm. but we also need to be 
understanding in general of any politician because they don't know they're you know you would hope they're they're doing their best um and trying to improve a country it's difficult and i don't know how to improve it i don't know if maybe more transparency would help um there's pros and cons to that right but like you're cutting more money well there's a lot of labs that have zero money right now because they're not getting they're not getting any funding and there's there's pros and cons to the funding systems as well because a lot of bigger labs tend to get more money but i'm kind of pro a system wherein applications are anonymous because a lot of systems at least my impression is they're not anonymous so you once you could see a lab and and if you see it's a huge lab it's like okay obviously this proposal is going to be good we're going to give them more money they're a big lab right but that's not always the case there can be smaller labs that have phenomenal research to back up their proposal but if you don't really know them it's it's kind of a weird system in that sense because if you don't really know them you don't know their track record they don't you don't know if they've been successful in the past in pursuing these things and stuff so it's a little bit more complicated than you think but obviously more money would help more people like you obviously want to give a flourishing lab um, the resources to continue doing that but yeah. then that sort of um, stops any other labs from growing, smaller labs from growing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, especially with limited funds. Mm-hmm. And that's this is not just in Canada. This is I yeah, assume this is also in yeah. in uh, the U.S. as well. Yeah. But yeah, so expanding on now your uh, current position, your current wonderful, <laughs> beautiful postdoctoral associate, not fellow position at. Uh, <laughs> I was actually going to explain the difference, at least at Yale. So it might vary based on institute. Um, But at Yale, a postdoctoral associate is someone who's technically employed by Yale. So because my pay comes out of my PI's grants, I'm an associate. Um, But if you're categorized as a fellow, you're basically separate from everything because you have your own income. So you're not technically because you're not being paid by the university you're not an employee of Yale in that sense if that makes sense so you have your oh, own money, but that means then you have to pay into your own health care and then you have to also deal with taxes at the end to pay taxes so it's it's kind of like two completely different systems um, and actually this is kind of something I was talking about with Mike my old PI because he did a postdoc at UCSF um, so he's been super helpful with the transition from Canada to the U.S. and and vice versa. But it seems as though this is my impression. I could be I could be wrong because I haven't looked into it that much. But this is what I've heard from some people is that it actually and this is a con in my opinion of coming here. Depending on the institute, it could not be financially beneficial to become a fellow, which is unfortunate because things like that look great on your CV. Um, so as an associate, I still pay per month for healthcare and the services that I'm interested in. But then it kind of like recategorizes everything. It's like flipping a coin almost trying to decide whether or not you want to pursue fellowships for your CV at the expense of maybe pay. Um, so it's something I need to look into a little bit more. I've only been here for six months, so it's still new. But So out of curiosity, the... Um the title of postdoctoral associate is not equivalent to postdoctoral fellow in the <laughs> professional level. Um, just because of technicality. I think it becomes more complicated to being international because we're on a visa, right? So like the requirements of our visas are quite, quite strict. 
Um, yeah. So it might not be as much of an issue for a U.S. citizen, for example. Now, because I asked you about when you applied to Canadian programs, uh, what problems you faced there? What problems did you face when you went searching for this and other potential postdoctoral positions in the U.S.? And or and more broadly, how did you go about applying to these U.S. postdoctoral positions? Yeah, so it's pretty much the same process wherein you would contact a supervisor or PI and say you're interested, send your CV, cover letter, etc. Um, and then I think typically what would happen, or at least in my experience and what I've talked to other people about, is you would have an initial interview with the PI and you kind of have a discussion about your research, your, your goals, everything. And then you, you would have a second interview where you would give a talk about your PhD work to the lab. And then it's kind of like a seminar, right? So you'd give a seminar and then they'd ask questions. Um, And then something I strongly suggest for everyone at any level joining the lab is getting the or asking for the opportunity to talk to other trainees within the lab. So Uh I got to talk to PhD students, other postdocs, et cetera. So it was a similar process to applying to programs or grad school programs in Canada, which was Um, Nice, but it's also overwhelming to that extent. So as I mentioned, I had a lot of time to research other labs. Uh, For me, I'm I'm passionate about science in general. Um, And that sounds corny as well. But (laughs) I I found myself interested in so many different labs and they weren't necessarily overlapping in the type of research either. This is a little crazy, but I ended up making an Excel spreadsheet (laughs) <laughs> I was interested in the country they were in and then I color coded so yeah I color coded it so for example green wow. would be the labs I knew for sure I wanted to email at least um and then yellow and then and then red were ones I ended up not deciding not to pursue um but that's the, kind of the, how I went through my process. light system yeah so that's kind of how I went through my process um but at the end of the day my decision um, for which lab to join ended up being more of a gut feeling, which doesn't help anyone. Um, but I do think paying attention to just how you feel about things is important. And I know that also sounds a little bit lame. There's so many pros to a lot of the labs I was looking at. Like they were all phenomenal labs and the people I've talked to were phenomenal researchers and there were opportunities everywhere. Yeah, so I had a hard time deciding. <laughs> I had a hard time deciding, but I ended up going with my gut feeling and I'm like, I couldn't be happier where I am. Maybe just to expand a little bit on this uh, Excel spreadsheet of different oh, yeah. uh, uh, positions you were in or labs you were interested in, were these, uh, were a lot of these labs in the US? Uh, and if so, what made you be interested in researching, doing research in the US? Most of the labs ended up being in the U.S., but I think that might just be because there's a lot of institutes here. Um, So I did look at Canadian institutes. I looked at institutes in the U.K., Germany. Um, So I kind of looked mostly Europe, U.S., or mostly Europe, North America, I guess. For me, location didn't matter, so I would have moved anywhere, but it was more about the work that the lab was doing, how the PI is, the people, the environment, stuff like that. That's something I definitely prioritize. And it's it's something that people don't always consider because it sounds silly, right? Like you're going to make a huge decision based on environment. But it actually matters a lot. And people don't realize that you're spending 
probably six out of seven days of the week or close to with the same people. And you want to be in an environment that works for you. So you want if you're someone who likes to you're more introverted, you want to like stick to yourself, then maybe you should find a lab that has that type of environment. If you're one person that likes to collaborate, talk to people, stuff like you know what I mean? Like, I think it's really important that you're in an environment that helps set you up for success and it's what you need as well. My old PI, Mike Downey, he actually, I sent him a list of labs I was considering talking to and he gave me some insights just because he's been in the field much longer than I have. So he had a little bit of insight from from some labs and he knew colleagues of of some labs and whatnot, you know, so that, that really helped that he was really on board with helping me find a lab that was a good fit for me. Um, so that certainly helped. He also gave me some suggestions of labs he thought I would succeed in as well. So cool. he was really instrumental in helping me make that decision. Yeah, I guess you were looking at globally, so not just uh, yeah. not just in North America, Canada and the U.S., for example. So that's my, my follow-up question was the, I guess, pockets of labs that you were interested in. Um, this this green light, this green list of uh, of labs that y- you were emailing, did you find that they were scattered across the world or um, kind of close together uh, in, a, in in one country, one region of the of the of the world? I think ultimately a lot of the labs ended up being in the U.S. So I kind of I really enjoyed how my PhD progressed, and I really enjoyed my my last project looking at protein trafficking with AP3. So I knew I wanted to work more closely into protein trafficking as an aspect, um, but I also still had my heart tied to polyphosphate biology. So it was kind of a toss up in that sense. A lot of the the labs ended up being in more protein trafficking, um, lysosome, endosome biology labs. Or in my head, I was getting at uh, just the fact that the U.S. has just so many institutes, like you said. Oh yeah. You're 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 bound to find like a project. Um, even niche project or um, broad project that m- many research groups in the U.S. are are probably looking into. When you're when you're looking for these sorts of programs or positions, the U.S. is always just jam packed with them. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's in that which sense is like pro and a con. An easier option because you'll find someone. Yeah. For me, I knew. Based off of kind of the literature I had been basing my work off of, I knew a couple of, of PIs that I was automatically interested in. Um, and then I literally systematically looked through departments, read about everyone's research at institutes that I knew of. So I, I certainly missed a lot of institutes where I could have been very happy. Um, and that kind of alludes to one of your questions about prestige and and stuff. But yeah, so that's kind of how I, I based my stuff off. I certainly spent a lot of time looking through it. If anyone wants my Excel spreadsheet, I'm happy to share it if they're interested in similar interests. But (laughs) (laughs) it gave me a bigger perspective of things almost because there's so many labs and so many researchers that you might not have heard of, but do really interesting and phenomenal work. And it's it was kind of cool to be able to go through that list systematically and see what other people are doing and, and get ideas, not only for your own project, but but maybe where you want to pursue in the future. One really big question I, I wanted to ask you, which sort of not something I could get into because I obviously don't have any experience in a 
US laboratory environment. So I didn't go into this in the segment before this talk, but since you've experienced both environments, I'm curious as to whether you've noticed any major differences within them. These could be work ethic, um, the research method, uh, the team dynamic between what you've experienced and what you've experienced at Yale uh, could be anything. Um, had, do you have any um, things in mind that you noticed right away or within the six months that you've been there? Six months, I think, right? Yeah. So I haven't really noticed anything that's that different, to be honest. It seems quite similar. Um, and it seems, um, for example, this, I guess this might be in the cut or not. Um, but for example, the lab beside us really reminds me of Kristen's lab and you guys. So it's Is that it, a good thing or a bad thing? Back in home. Like it, it was a okay, really okay. easy transition for me. Um, but I think that attests to also choosing the proper environment. So I haven't really noticed. The only thing I've noticed is obviously people think greatly of universities like Yale and they should. That's the only thing I've really noticed. And in terms of prestige, like Prestige is going to exist in no matter country you're in, right? Even in Canada, there are a couple of universities that are thought to be, you know, higher tier and more prestigious um, than others. But I haven't noticed really any differences um, comparing where we were from and now being at Yale. I'm so glad you said that because that was the main point of my segment uh, yeah. <laughs> for our talk yeah. is that... Um, any environment, this is obviously a personal opinion, and then I, I've talked about this with other peers of mine um, that I've met in my PhD and my master's. Mm -hmm. The research and the teams that you have, when, and whatever country you're in, are yeah. most likely the same. Yeah. Um, it's and like that's what you, you could be attracted to a lab that, it, you know, is like, Publish, 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 which is fine, but that doesn't mean it's in the U.S. It could be <laughs> in Canada. It could be in uh, in Ireland, where I'm at, at, yeah. at currently. So, and uh, vice versa. Like, there's a lot of smaller universities that are publishing phenomenal work. Like, it's really people talk about prestige and stuff. And yes, there's there's certainly an aspect to it, but the, it's not the be all end all for research. There's tons of labs at prestigious universities that are doing great research. Tons of labs at really small universities that are doing great research. A colleague of mine, he's from Portugal, and they they don't really have that much funding, and they do phenomenal research. You know, like it it really depends, I think, on the lab and on the PI. And to touch on that, like I didn't choose Yale, I chose the lab, right? So it was just a coincidence that Sean is employed at Yale and is a PI at Yale. But I think I would have chosen Sean and his lab regardless of where they were. So that does answer uh, one of the questions I had for you going into um, a sort of final final segment of the the serious part of this talk. <laughs> um, so I talked about, uh, which you've already mentioned, um, prestige or brand recognition of attending certain universities. Uh, this is particularly prevalent in America. And obviously Yale makes this list as an Ivy League school, which I think is a topic that and university rankings is a topic I'm going to go into in this podcast at some point. Okay. Um, but you've already answered the the question about your decision in applying. This was not because it's in Yale. It's because of the lab yeah. itself. I guess my follow-up question to that would be, do you feel that your resume is now given advantage over others in the job market because you are now um, 
doing the research at this really prestigious university? Yeah, I'm actually not too sure, to be honest. I think we might want to ask, for example, uh, a search committee that question. I think because research is weird in that sense, right? Because the level of the institute you're at doesn't relate necessarily to the level of research. Um, So ultimately, people are going to be looking at your publications, your involvement, your extracurriculars, um, the type of work you're doing, how you interview and stuff like that. So I can imagine, um, even though I'm doing a postdoc at Yale, someone doing a postdoc at a smaller institute, if they have that CV and they're publishing and, and doing phenomenal work, like... I don't think the prestige of the university should matter at this point. It should just be what's on your CV, what you've done, what you want to do, um, and stuff like that. It shouldn't it shouldn't be based on where you were. And there are some advantages to where you are because you might have more funding, for example. Um, so that does make your life perhaps a little bit easier. Um, but at the end of the day, it should be based on the merit of your work and the merit of you as a researcher, in my opinion. I agree to that in our own research community or academic community. I think that is actually, actually true. Um, So this will then lead into my next question. Uh, Sort of now I'm going to broaden it a little bit. Uh, The question was, what are your thoughts on the global impression or I guess the general impression of prestige that comes to attending these universities? So you mentioned that in our own um, ac- academic communities that this is the case, that it shouldn't matter. Normally it doesn't matter. It's all about merit. Um, but when you expand that to, let's say, mainstream news, um, you know, when you go up to the political level, when you mention these sorts of names or brands, uh, you sort of been given this, this new air of this new look to you that, yeah. um, Oh, I leave this is again personal opinion. You're sort of given this look that, oh wow, you're you're this high profile figure because of you come from this place. Um, yeah. So just just your thoughts on this this global impression or general impression of prestige within certain universities. Yeah, I definitely think that's absolutely true, and I think automatically people think higher of and trust more maybe people who are from these well-known universities. And I think that's globally as well. So even in the UK and Canada, um, if you say a researcher from X university and you know it's a very well-known and prestigious university, you might tend to believe them more, which shouldn't be the case. I don't agree with that at all. But it does make things, I guess, a little bit easier in that sense to have the the prestige to come behind. Um, but as I meant, like, I, it shouldn't be the be-all, end-all. It should be about you and and it is difficult to get that that across sometimes especially if you're talking about mainstream media for example when they have um you know those those panel the 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 anchor person and then uh, a panel with an expert and then it's labeled as you know harvard harvard professor or um or or, uh, yale princeton professor or something like that Uh, it's sort of like oh they're from this place okay must believe them right yeah i think there's that's certainly something that happens. And I think it, it might even happen for businesses too, for example, like it's just the concept of prestige gives you more merit for some reason. And I understand why, um, but I still think, you know, there's in every avenue, regardless of prestige, there's going to be um, pros and cons to each. There's going to be things like that, in my opinion, should be taken with a grain of salt. Um, yeah. But it does 
like to reiterate, reiterate, it does make things a little bit easier at times coming from a prestigious university or area. Um, and it's the same from in, in Canada as well. Yes, definitely, definitely. Like U of T is always high rankings on these yeah. university lists, uh, UBC, McGill. Yeah. Um, these these highly prestigious schools in Canada. So yeah, I could definitely see that. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's especially if you're looking at it from a research perspective, it varies as well. So for example, university or college might be great for undergraduate education, um, but once you move to research, it's probably going to switch the rankings, and it depends how. The right. institute decides to allocate their money and and support the the biggest part is supporting their trainees their PIs. Um, that's like one tangent thing, but I think um, a lot of people can feel frustrated with PIs sometimes. And there are some PIs that might not be the best. There's some phenomenal ones, but I think at least from my experience at U Ottawa, like PIs really deserve and should get more support than they do. Um, because they're jumping from a postdoc position where you're focused on publishing, publishing, publishing. Now you're put in this position where you have to teach, you have to mentor and train students, you have to start a lab, you have to learn finances, you have to learn how to apply to grants, you have to, you know, there's there's so many things that you might not learn during your postdoc, and now you're being put into a position where you're expected to know everything. Um, so I think certainly supporting postdocs and making that transition is really important. And it's a little tangential to this, but really important to me. And I know a lot of the time the feeling or the vibe I get is I think PIs would want that as well. Um, because at the end of the day, it's their job and they want their lab to succeed. And, and it comes down to them being able to succeed as well. And if they're not given the resources to succeed, just as students and postdocs and other trainees are, then it kind of, it all goes downhill anyway. And uh, some universities and colleges likely have more support. Like I know there's a lot of things at UOttawa um, that are offered for support that likely aren't offered elsewhere. But at the end of the day, I think having these resources is really important to helping people help other people and help their careers. Um, if you could, just to summarize this whole segment, talk about a main difference between Canadian research and American research. Could you name one difference? I'd say funding, probably. That's the funding. impression I get, at least. Um, yeah, I'm not I think that makes sense. Funding yet, but it certainly, especially coming from Canada, I think a lot of Canadians can relate. They have the impression that the U.S. has a lot more funding. And so far, that's what it seems to me. I really think, you know, at the end of the day, you can make a lot of work go with little money, but having funding really makes or breaks you sometimes. Yeah, I guess having the first or potentially second now largest economy in the world um, definitely really helps in any sort of sector, science being one of them, obviously. Yeah. Um, so America would seem to have the most money. That's why a lot of people go there. But again, the the research itself, which is what you should be going into science for, shouldn't yeah. matter where yeah. where you are. So I mean, um, I I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned that. Is what yeah, I think like no matter what country you want to stay in, you'll be able to find a lab that suits you, that you'll succeed in, that is meant for you. I do know. I think I think it also depends on your career goals as well. So if you want to become a PI, at the end of the day. Funding is what's going to matter and publications is what's going to matter, um, which is unfortunate, Sadly. but that's why 
I think a lot of people come to the U.S. to do a postdoc because those opportunities are here. All about the opportunity. And hopefully that is something that you and everyone who goes there um, uh, not take advantage of, but more so um, using that um, that experience to um, further, you know, a global yeah. effort and in, in, in a solution that we're all trying to solve. So, oh, yeah. So actually, in my lab, we don't have a single American postdoc. Everyone is international, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah, so we've got someone from the UK. Cool. We've got two postdocs from India. Um, there was a third one, but she has since moved on. There's me from Canada. There's a postdoc from Chile. There's a postdoc from Portugal. So that does say that something that, yeah, that's that, that, really international. That means something, right? Everyone's coming to the US as a postdoc for a reason. Um, and so some of those people, especially in, in other countries, they really probably don't have that opportunity that that we have in North America or in the UK, for example, or in other countries in Europe. So it's for some people, it's kind of their only option to get to where they want to be. Uh, opportunity is something you, you try and find and that is normally found in um, U.S. a lot mm -hmm. and also uh, Canada as well. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, great. You, you answered, uh, you know, all the serious questions there, Amanda. Well done. You made it through the gauntlet. Didn't laugh, didn't hiccup. Mm. <laughs> None of that happened. <laughs> no edit. This is a straight cut. No edit. <laughs> yeah, well, I did fuck up a few times, but. <laughs> uh, I do have one final. Oh, it's a serious, thing. Serious question. What is that? Is it for the, the shooting for the stars thing or whatever? Shooting for the moon, actually. Oh, yeah. God. Oh, shooting God. for the stars, I think, is a, it's like the exact same expression. So they come yeah. from the same root. Um, yeah. This is a replacement of the fun question. This is a new segment, as listeners know, called Literal or Metaphor, where I try and tie today's expression, which was shoot for the moon, as she said, to the guest experience. Um, so I gave these uh, two questions, the literal and metaphorical question to Amanda already. Uh, hopefully she's read them. <laughs> you can choose either the literal question or the metaphorical question. Which one would you like? Okay, Actually, I want the metaphorical one. Then. So Amanda has chosen the metaphorical question. And here Not it is. Elimination, because I didn't want to. The other question was too hard. <laughs> <laughs> the other question involves imagination. <laughs> I know, but it's also choosing single people, and it's like, yeah, there's maybe I don't want to choose one person for each. We have enough space on the spacecraft to have more, so. Yeah, so, okay, so here's the metaphorical question for Amanda. To shoot for the moon is to attempt a very difficult goal with little chance of success. So, in your professional career, what's a time that you either shot for the moon and succeeded, or you shot for the moon and failed and what did you learn from one of these experiences? I guess a lot of the times I've often felt like the underdog in a lot of situations, um, academically, athletically, for people who don't know, I'm four foot 10. So playing some sports becomes a little yes. bit more difficult when you're that short. Um, but I, I don't know, just in general, I, I really enjoy challenges and I, I do try and prove myself and prove to others that in athletics, even though I'm four for ten, I can still play rugby and I can still crush it. Academically, I didn't have the grades, but I, I was still capable of being a very productive PhD student. I had a great 
a great time, great environment, made contributions, and here I am now. I guess the the moral of a lot of this is kind of it don't focus so much on the specifics and there's a lot more to being a good researcher and a good employee in whatever career path you might choose than being whatever's written on paper. And just because you might not be the best student, for example, doesn't mean you're not going to be successful in the future. It's just put your, you know, get to the grind, put your mind in it, become passionate about something, follow that passion. And I strongly believe that for the majority of it, you know, you'll get there. It's it's not the be all end all. What you do early on in life likely isn't really not going to impact what you're doing later on as well. Uh, <laughs> like it's. You could be the worst student in first year, which I probably was, um, but still make it, you know, so it's it's I don't know. I just I just I hope people have the drive and the passion to pursue things and they, they don't get so caught up in a lot of this bureaucratic stuff. So you basically shot for the moon with your entire life and succeeded so far. Oh, there's been a lot of failures, but yes, <laughs> have succeeded sometimes. Um <laughs> <laughs> but yeah go bigger right that's a great answer honestly and like she said like um you know what would you do in your early studies um just for some context for myself like i failed my first test i ever failed or exam i ever failed was an undergrad first year chemistry oh chemistry of course it was first year intro to chemistry chemistry. or calculus for biologists probably (laughs) (laughs) It's sort of like a reality check. You sort of have to kind of mm-hmm. deal with this, figure out how to deal with failures in a, in your own way, and then figure out how to succeed the next time, uh, basically. Yeah. A lot of people go through that as well. And it's, it's always such a huge jump, um, no matter your situation, from high school to undergrad, and even undergrad to grad school and grad to postdoc. Like it's always big changes um, that can be overwhelming. But I a lot of people do tend to focus on their negatives and their early on life. Even if you're perusing Reddit, for example, so many people are posting saying, oh, can I even get into grad school? I had a terrible GPA my first year. Like, absolutely. Most grad schools won't care. Like, just, <laughs> just go for it. If you're passionate about it, you'll find a way. There, There's so many different programs, so many different PIs and, and whatnot. It's to me, the most important part is finding a place that an environment that is meant for you and will be the best environment for you to succeed in. And that's going to be different for everyone. Um, but I firmly believe that that's one of the most important parts of, of choosing steps towards your career path in academia. I think if there's anything I learned, uh, PIs from Canada, US, Europe, wherever, always want graduate students. Yeah. <laughs> so. Just shoot you. I got so many rejections for for joining a lab in in grad school. And even having my background, and I was fortunate enough to be on on projects that had publications during my PhD, like it went it went very well. And I was fortunate enough to be a part of that. Um, I know sometimes things are a little bit more complicated for others. I was set up pretty well, luckily. Um, But even then, like I was terrified to message some PIs because I don't know. It's it's still nerve wracking and imposter syndrome is something that a lot of people still still deal with. But just go for it. What What's the worst that could happen? Right. Someone says, sorry, I can't take you on. 
that's that's not the end of the world and you've made contact with someone else that's within a field that maybe you could contact later you know like there's really no downfalls to just emailing people getting a vibe and and seeing where it goes find the good vibes yeah find the good vibes find the good vibes yeah honestly amanda this was a very very awesome discussion uh this was really great really stressed um, all day. <laughs> you're really stressed all day <laughs> it was really fun I honestly I arranged yeah. my apartment to have a nice background for this <laughs> people will see your beautiful background in the one minute snippet of the very profound thing you said yeah, so uh, during this during this meeting but it, honestly it was Did such a the same person because like who am I <laughs> Like, obviously, I'm still new here, so it's kind of based off of. But that's sort of, like, why I like these discussions. Like, it's obviously a, um, an opinion. Um, you're somebody I know who has this experience. Uh, you you have a perspective, um, no matter how long you've stayed there, even if it was just a month. Yeah. Uh, you had a perspective to talk about uh, and then base that off of your previous experience at University of Ottawa, Western, what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you for for sharing those uh, <laughs> those uh, experiences and thoughts. Towards the ends of uh, these discussions, I just sort of asked the interviewee to summarize some of the things we talked about. Just anything you'd like to highlight from our discussion, and obviously any self promotion that you would like to do. A lot of the things we discussed. Um, kind of related to changes and differences but at the end of the day I at least if you're pursuing academia or wanting to go further within your career past grad school for example there's going to be a place for you no matter where you are and I think just doing the research reaching out and talking to people really does a lot doesn't matter what university you're at in my opinion it doesn't matter what college you're at There's phenomenal research going on everywhere and you just have to kind of shoot your shot and just ask PIs, ask around, find great areas for you. Um, But I wouldn't put too much weight to either the country you're in unless you need to be in a specific country for whatever reasons or the prestige of the area uh, or college university you're at because at the end of the day, what matters is the research you're doing and that's, that should matter not only for you, but for other people as well. And I guess also a part of my story is I wasn't the best student, but I, I've come so far and I've learned so much. So don't don't shoot yourself in the foot. Don't be so down on yourself. Like there's a lot of people who might think coming out of undergrad, they aren't meant for grad school, but they really are. And a lot of those people who feel that way end up to be the best students And I know that from my own experience, but also being able to have a lab with other students and then sharing, you know, knowing people from your old lab and stuff like a lot of us were the exact same. We weren't the best students, but we had incredible work ethic. We were really passionate. And that's that's what matters in research to me. She she really meant to say shoot for the moon, not shoot your shots. She she, she wanted to say shoot for the moon. Okay, yeah, we'll replace that. You can do my, you can do like an audio over whatever with your voice. <laughs> I just wanted to plug in my, the, 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 I'll put, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just wanted to make a plug for uh, the expression today, that's all. 
That's a great answer. If um, Let's just say if people wanted to reach out to you, how is the best way to do that? I don't use Twitter that often, but you did post my Twitter. So I did tweet about this. So that was a positive. Thank you. Um, but people, my name will probably be posted. It's a hyphenated last name. I'm the only one in the world with this whole name. So you can find me on most social media platforms or even email me through uh, Yale. I'm more than happy to help anyone, even if people have general questions. I typically actually like survey Reddit to try and help people because I know how difficult it can be to navigate stuff like this coming from a background where I knew knew no one who did this. So I'll put your uh, Twitter. I can get more followers. I promise I'll follow back. I'm not one of those people who takes followers and doesn't follow back, but. God, I hate those people. (laughs) I know. Or, no, I hate people who follow you, and then they're like, oh, okay, and then, so you follow them, and then they they unfollow you just to oh, gain their numbers back. Uh, or, or maybe they just don't like my content. I don't know. Maybe like, that could be it. I'd also like to end by giving a shout-out to, like, my current PI, Sean Ferguson, my old PIs, Kathleen Hill, Mike Downey, and, like, everyone I've met throughout this whole process, because, like, as happy as it sounds, I really wouldn't be here without all of you people. Well, maybe not you, Kevin. <laughs> I was waiting. <laughs> I was waiting. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. For the jab. See, like, to attest to the environment nature, like, I, I wouldn't be where I was if I didn't have that environment and that support from not only my bosses and my PIs, but from, from fellow coworkers, friends, everything. And that's that's one of the things I love about my lab right now because coming from a PhD to a postdoc, not only do a lot of people still deal with imposter syndrome, which is ridiculous because we shouldn't be dealing with that at this point, but I think a lot of people do. One of the fears is like the lab you're joining is going to be so competitive because a lot of those positions as PIs aren't as re- readily available for the amount of people who enter postdocs. But like my current lab, the the amount of support in this environment is like I couldn't even explain it. It's it's phenomenal. There's people within different projects. People will even come up and, and help you even if you don't ask. So, for example, I was using we have a, a small microscope in our lab in our cell culture room. So you can look at bright fields and then uh, fluorescent stuff. So we normally just use it to look at our cells, see if transfections worked and stuff. And uh, a coworker of mine, Pablo, He's very, very, really good with microscopy. Like he's a microscopy expert, and he was really excited to help me see if my transfection worked because I'm doing a lot of genetic engineering and and modifying a lot of cell lines and stuff. And so I was like trying to use it, and it was it was okay. Like my images were looking okay; they weren't for publication, but I just wanted to see if it worked. And he came in, and like I didn't even ask him, and he came and spent time to help me with it. Like yeah. that, that type of environment to me means so much that people will literally stop what they're doing to come and help you or, or whatever, you know, like that, that really means a lot to me. And I'm really, really thankful for the environment I'm in right now. That's really nice. Really nice. Honestly, uh, that, that, that's something that I've experienced here as well in Ireland. And then obviously at the University of Ottawa with our close research mm-hmm. group, um, it's good to have those environments, something yeah. to seek for in, in any sort of country that you want to travel to if, if it's not your home country now super glad the the position at yale is going well um i'm sure we'll talk about it uh, in more detail after this or even in th- in the far future so um yeah. Uh, both. I, yeah in both yeah exactly so 
Um, again, thank you, Amanda, for for coming onto the podcast. Uh, it was a blast. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> that, that's all. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to be <laughs> here. Say, really. Glad to give some sort of perspective to some things really proud and happy for you with your podcast and everything and this is where you put my painting uh like snapchat of my painting (laughs) no i'm just kidding but it's really cool that you're doing this because this is something that a lot of people wouldn't pursue and science communication is really difficult and being able to like take on this adventure is very very impressive yeah, it's oh, the nicest man. thing I'm ever going to say to you, so get over it. <laughs> at, least, at least it's recorded, right? <laughs> I got it, everyone. I got it. New ringtone. But yeah. uh, yes, thanks again for coming. Yeah, no problem. Truly, no matter which side of the border you find yourself on, it's the research and the people within these institutes that contribute the most to one's experience. We can follow opportunity, we can follow prestige, up to a certain extent, and surely there's an argument about forces present or absent within Canadian and American environments in this regard. But ultimately, what will likely foster passion and motivation in science are universal factors. From someone who studies the gut microbiome, follow your gut. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed learning about moons and maple and America. These comparisons, at least to me, are always interesting as it breaks through into topics we typically think about unconsciously unless we're deep in the thick of applications and moving dilemmas. In terms of updates, Christmas is coming! Woohoo! I'll be spending my first Christmas away from the comfort of family in Canada, but so are a lot of people around the world. At this point, being grateful is all we have to persevere through this pandemic. So be kind to your friends and colleagues and complain while still doing the virtual call with family in order to celebrate this year. The podcast will take a small hiatus during the holiday season and return in the new year sometime in January. But yes, thanks so much for listening. It truly does mean a lot to me. Do remember to follow the podcast Instagram page for visual updates and sneak peeks. And of course, anyone following will be placed into the draw to win some Metaforgen swag, whatever that ends up being, on my 40th episode and season 4 finale. Rate, subscribe, share, message, megaphone this episode to your family and friends. Tune in to the next episode of the season. But until then, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and of course, stay skeptical but curious.